Good day. And welcome to the Centene Second Quarter 2023 Earnings Conference Call. All participants will be in listen-only mode. Should you need assistance, please signal a conference specialist by pressing the star key followed by zero. After today's presentation, there will be an opportunity to ask questions. To ask a question, you may press star than one on your telephone keypad. And to withdraw your question, please press star than two. Please note today's event is being recorded. I would now like to turn the conference over to Jennifer Gilligan, Senior Vice President, Investor Relations. Please go ahead, ma'am. Thank you, Rocco, and good morning, everyone. Thank you for joining us on our second quarter earnings results conference call. Sarah London, Chief Executive Officer, Andrew Asher, Executive Vice President and Chief Financial Officer of Centene will host this morning's call, which also can be accessed through our website at centene.com. Ken Fazola, Centene's President, will also be available as a participant during Q&A. Any remarks that Centene may make about future expectations, plans, and prospects constitute forward-looking statements for the purpose of the safe harbor provision under the Private Securities Litigation Reform Act of 1995. Actual results may differ materially from those indicated by those forward-looking statements as a result of various important factors, including those discussed in Centene's most recent Form 10-K, filed on February 21, 2023, and other public SEC filings. Centene anticipates that subsequent events and developments may cause its estimates to change. While the company may elect to update these forward-looking statements at some point in the future, we specifically disclaim any obligation to do so. The call will also refer to certain non-GAAP measures. A reconciliation of these measures with the most directly comparable GAAP measures can be found in our second quarter 2023 press release, which is available on the company's website under the Investors section. The company is unable to provide a reconciliation of certain 2024 measures to the corresponding GAAP measures without unreasonable effort due to the difficulty of predicting the timing and amounts of various items within a reasonable range. With that, I would like to turn the call over to our CEO, Sarah London. Sarah? Thank you, Jen, and good morning. Thank you for joining us for Centene's Q2 earnings call. Our second quarter performance demonstrated Centene's ability to deliver solid results amid a dynamic healthcare landscape. We reported $2.10 of adjusted diluted EPS for the quarter and lifted our 2023 premium and service revenue forecast by another $1.8 billion. We now expect to deliver at least $6.45 of adjusted EPS for full year 2023, a $0.05 increase compared to April guidance. We are proud of the progress we are making with respect to the execution of our strategy, achieving operational milestones while delivering on the financial commitments we've made to our shareholders. Importantly, our balanced portfolio of core businesses delivered strong second quarter financials, with marketplace growth and Medicaid performance both running slightly ahead of expectation. Let me provide a few updates related to our progress in each business line and then share the latest on our value creation work. Let's start with Medicaid. Since our Q1 call, Medicaid redeterminations have formally kicked off in every one of our 30 active states. The time our team spent over the last 18 months preparing for redeterminations has positioned us well to support our state partners, establishing timely information exchange and shared workflow 
as well as reaching out directly to members to provide education around process and enrollment options. Year-to-date, we have made 9 million outreach attempts, with early indications of higher-than-normal member engagement. These outreach efforts, inclusive of more than 15,000 community events, also contribute to our ability to recapture members, even if initially disenrolled as part of redeterminations. We are actively tracking the number of members that we are recapturing post-procedural disenrollment and expect the percentage to meaningfully advance as this process unfolds. At an enterprise level, net Medicaid membership is consistent with expectations. We have seen ebbs and flows from month to month as states continue to evolve and refine their processes. Given the recent news that CMS is requiring states, certain states, to pause redeterminations and reinstate members who were dropped for procedural reasons, we will be closely tracking any impact this may have on the membership slope over the next few months. Much of the redeterminations journey remains ahead, and we continue to monitor the major levers, including rate, acuity, and membership. Based on our most recent analysis and informed by member lists and acuity projections from our state partners, our expectation around member acuity for 2023 remains unchanged. As we assess who is staying versus leaving, we are tracking consistent with the acuity modeling we discussed on our first quarter call in April. Medicaid rate conversations continue to be constructive. We are consistently seeing states take acuity adjustments into consideration in their rate updates, and at an enterprise level, we remain on track with our expectations for 2023. Overall, we are grateful for the partnership and trust placed with us by the states we serve and for the leadership CMS has shown in helping us to ensure that eligible Medicaid members do not experience unnecessary coverage gaps as states work through the unprecedented scale of this redeterminations process. From a Medicaid business development standpoint, we chalked an exciting new business win in June as our team in Oklahoma was selected by the Oklahoma Healthcare Authority for statewide contracts to provide managed care for the Sooner Select and Sooner Select Children's Specialty Plan programs. The team delivered a strong RFP response and was the sole source winner for the Children's Specialty Program, designed to serve children and families involved in the child welfare and juvenile systems, including foster care. This represents Centene's 31st state and our sixth sole source foster care contract. Overall, Medicaid, our largest and longest running business, delivered strong results in the second quarter, and our market teams continue to prove the value of the local approach, demonstrating innovative and comprehensive support for our members and state partners as we continue to execute against redeterminations in the coming months and quarters. Turning to Medicare, our quarter-end membership was 1.3 million, with approximately 47% of Medicare Advantage lives associated with value-based care arrangements, a 300 basis point increase for Investor Day, as we've added key VBC partners to our network. Second quarter results reflect some slightly higher outpatient claims experience within Medicare during the month of May. Drew will provide more detail on this, as well as our bid posture for 2024, but it is worth noting that our increased 2023 adjusted EPS guidance incorporates our latest view of trend and pockets of slightly higher Medicare utilization in the back half of the year should that occur. Given our discussion in Q1 around STARS, I'd like to provide an update on what we expect to see in October 
and what we are seeing year-to-date around STARS improvement efforts that will inform future results. As a reminder, on our Q1 call in April, I shared that we expected minimal progress in four-star plans, but that we anticipated solid overall contract improvement, reflecting the operational investments we have made. With more complete program data, our projections show some more pressure on four-star results, but we are still expecting solid overall contract progression thanks to strong improvements in admin and ops and pharmacy measures, which have been our focus in this first cycle. With several contracts close to the bubble, variability in cut points means we could end the cycle with no four-star contracts compared to our current single contract representing 2.7% of members. While this is disappointing, we do expect to see meaningful movement in our three and three and a half star bands in October, and roughly two-thirds of our members are in plans showing year-over-year improvement. Pulling up these underperforming contracts represents tangible progress in delivering economic value to Medicare as we look to 2025 and beyond. As a reminder, in Q1, we reset our quality strategy to maximize contracts that reach the three-and-a-half-star threshold, consistent with our renewed focus on serving complex and dual-eligible members beginning with our 2024 bids. Put simply, STARS strategy is different when you're managing complex and duals populations. Strong performance at three and a half stars with Centene's target member mix will give our Medicare business the economics necessary to serve these populations well and support our multi-year performance goals. With this in mind, we have set a revised target of reaching 85% of members in three and a half star plans by October of 2025. We are closely monitoring in-year star metrics and continue to see important markers of sustained improvement consistent with our remarks on the Q1 call. A few examples include a 27% reduction in year-over-year call volumes, resulting from a redesigned member onboarding process that features digital outreach and member self-service. Consistent four-star performance in our core admin and ops metrics. Call center service levels for members, providers, and brokers at or above target with first call resolution in the mid-80s. Year-to-date member, provider, and broker satisfaction scores in the mid-90s, and the addition of 24,000 new physicians across our Medicare network year-to-date as we look to ensure robust access options for our members. Medicare Advantage provides Centene with an important opportunity to serve low-income and medically complex seniors. It also represents a significant long-term earnings opportunity as we strengthen the overall performance and trajectory of our program. Moving to Marketplace, our Ambitter Health franchise continues to outperform. This truly differentiated asset creates a unique growth opportunity for Centene, both near and long term. We ended the quarter with 3.3 million Marketplace lives, exceeding our previous projections. Our strong membership results were driven by strategic product design, long-standing and differentiated broker relationships, and overall market growth. Our large and growing marketplace platform is well-positioned to provide coverage to beneficiaries losing Medicaid eligibility from redeterminations, and we are leveraging our networks and engagement tools to support members during this transition. Where states allow, we are educating our Medicaid members about marketplace options and are working to proactively communicate with members who we predict will likely be eligible for marketplace in order to preserve continuity of coverage. 
during just May and June, AmBetter Health successfully outreached to potential members with more than 160,000 digital touch points via email or SMS as part of our redetermination efforts. We expect this dynamic will continue to fuel growth in marketplace throughout the remainder of the year and into 2024. Finally, our value creation initiatives are advancing well. We continue to take a rigorous approach to streamlining core SGNA as we focus and fortify the organization for the future. This includes additional work to standardize our operating model while maintaining the hyperlocal care that differentiates Centene in the market. The implementation of our new PBM contract remains on track as we've achieved all first half 2023 milestones and look forward to our first go-live dates in early 2024. Our portfolio review work also continues, and in June, we closed the divestiture of Apixio to New Mountain Capital. We structured the transaction to maintain an ownership position as well as a long-term contract because of our view that Apixio's proven artificial intelligence tools are uniquely positioned for this moment in healthcare technology. We believe that partnering with New Mountain will allow Apixio to innovate rapidly through continued investment while we continue as an influential customer and minority owner. This is a great example of our thoughtful efforts to maximize long-term value as we reposition non-core assets. In parallel, as our value creation efforts create operating bandwidth, we continue to build our M&A pipeline and look forward to diversifying our capital deployment as strategic opportunities for inorganic growth emerge. Overall, Centene delivered another quarter of solid financial results while executing against a robust list of transformative initiatives to move our company forward. With half of 2023 in the books, we are excited to leverage our positive momentum as we work to support our state partners throughout the duration of redeterminations, maintain our leadership position in marketplace, and strategically realign our Medicare Advantage business, building momentum around STARS and positioning our products for long-term growth and profitability. Centene's improved earnings power in 2023 is a direct result of the focus and hard work that our organization is demonstrating every single day across our markets. We remain confident in our ability to achieve greater than $6.60 of adjusted earnings per share in 2024 as we continue to execute against our strategic framework, creating value for members, customers, and shareholders alike. With that, I'd like to turn the call over to Drew to review the quarter and our financial outlook in more detail. Drew? Thank you, Sarah. Today we reported second quarter 2023 results of $35 billion in premium and service revenue and adjusted diluted earnings per share of $2.10, up over 18% from $1.77 in Q2 of 2022. Our Q2 consolidated HBR was 87.0%, consistent with our expectation and on track with our full year guidance range. Medicaid at 88.9% was a little favorable from the item that we mentioned on the first quarter call, and so far so good on matching rates with acuity, though it is still early in the redetermination process. Medicare at 86.2% was a little higher in the quarter than planned, as we also saw May outpatient incurred claims higher than the January through April period, largely in outpatient surgery. With respect to progression, May outpatient trend was higher than April, then it came down in June. July so far is steady with June. Inpatient was on track. 
And our previous guidance already assumed the Q1 Medicare HBR favorability would not continue. The commercial HBR of 81% was consistent with our expectations, inclusive of continued strong marketplace growth of 200,000 members in the quarter. Recall that special enrollment period members start with a lower margin profile and therefore higher HBR than full-year members, due in part to risk adjustment mechanics where the shorter duration doesn't get full credit for health conditions. Though, if retained for the following year, the SEP cohort has proven to be attractive. Our guidance contemplates growth to a peak of approximately 3.6 million members in Q4. On the topic of marketplace risk adjustment, 2022 was recently finalized by CMS, and we received our first view of the 2023 risk adjustment from the Wakely data in June and July. Overall, no surprises in marketplace risk adjustment, and as of June 30th, we have lowered our booked risk adjustment revenue estimates by a cumulative $314 million dollars given the financial condition of a couple of marketplace competitors. Though we have made this prudent adjustment to our revenue over each of the past five quarters, we plan on fully asserting our rights to collect what we are owed for risk adjustment. To be clear, we have already absorbed this $314 million hit, and this was the biggest reconciling item between the CMS-published amount owed to us for 2022 and what was on our books prior to June of 2023. Moving to other P&L and balance sheet items, our adjusted SG&A expense ratio was 8.6% in the second quarter compared to 8.2% last year, consistent with our updated mix of business. Cash flow provided by operations was $2.5 billion in the second quarter, primarily driven by net earnings and the timing of premium payments from our state partners. Our domestic unregulated and unrestricted cash on hand at quarter end was $200 million. During the second quarter and through July, we repurchased 10.5 million shares of our common stock for $700 million. Year to date, we have repurchased 15.4 million shares for $1.08 billion. We also reduced debt by $300 million in the quarter and achieved debt to adjusted EBITDA of 2.9 times. Our medical claims liability totaled $17 billion at quarter end and represents 52 days in claims payable compared to 54 in Q1 of 23 and 55 in Q2 of 22. The decrease was driven by state-directed payments that we collected over prior quarters and paid out in a lump sum in Q2, the largest related to California Hospital and Prop 56 payments representing $713 million, or 2.2 days sequentially. Outside of adjusted earnings during the second quarter, divestiture activity produced a net $0.11 cent gain in the quarter, and we also recognized uh, additional real estate impairments of $0.02 cents consistent with our ongoing real estate optimization initiatives. Now let's turn to the full year of 2023. We are pleased with the performance of the company in the first half of the year and are increasing our outlook to at least $6.45 of adjusted EPS for 2023. We are increasing 2023 premium and service revenue by $1.8 billion to reflect an additional $800 million of state-directed payments 
as well as refinement in Medicaid and marketplace premium revenue progression throughout the year. Our 2023 guidance continues to include an approximate $200 million premium deficiency reserve for Medicare, as we discussed on the Q1 call. The PDR would be recorded in Q4 of 2023. 2023 guidance also includes a little over a billion in investment income, excluding divestiture, gain and losses. To go a little bit deeper in Medicaid for 2023, during our first quarter call, we discussed many of our assumptions related to redeterminations that supported our forward projections. We have continued to monitor the actual member data against our projections by state and subpopulation, and as of July, we are tracking consistent with that updated forecast that we provided in April. The matching of rates to acuity continues to be a very important lever for the company as we navigate the redeterminations process. 14 of our 30 states provide rate updates between 7-1 and 10-1 each year. 12 of those have provided us rates, all of which include acuity adjustments. The other two are still working on rate updates, and based upon discussions, we expect those also uh, to include acuity adjustments. Beyond 2023, we are continually assessing our positioning for 2024, whether analyzing redetermination data and rate actions, assessing our 2024 bid assumptions and Medicare against current data, or examining our continued growth and performance of marketplace. Accordingly, we continue to have confidence in our 2024 adjusted EPS floor of greater than $6.60. To give you a little bit more color on 2024, that 660 has an embedded forecasted ballpark 80 cent loss from Medicare Advantage. In other words, if we were merely break even in Medicare Advantage in 2024, that 660 would be approximately 740. Let me close by addressing some of the concerns I've heard over the past few months. Number one, redeterminations. Our early results are playing out well compared to our assumptions, and states understand that in order to have actuarial soundness, acuity adjustments are necessary. Still plenty of execution ahead, but being on track is a good start. Number two, Medicare trend. We came into the year assuming double-digit outpatient trend and did so again for 2024. And as you know, our Medicare business is under construction for 2024 as we are investing in certain products and pulling back in others. Based upon current forecasts, we expect our Medicare segment to produce approximately 14% of our premium and service revenue in 2024 compared to 16% in the current quarter. And any change in our view of 2024 margin in Medicare, better or worse, by the time we get to the fourth quarter of 2023, merely flexes the PDR we book in 2023 up or down. Number three, growth. We couldn't be more pleased with our performance in the Oklahoma RFP for both broad Medicaid and foster care. And we look forward to the state of North Carolina implementing Medicaid expansion. We continue to execute well in Marketplace, where our industry-best overall position has enabled us to grow Marketplace membership 62% year-over-year. And while, yes, we have to get through the rest of redeterminations, we still have value creation initiatives to execute upon, 
and we have years of work ahead on stars, there's a lot to like here. So while the market trades us at 10 to 11 times earnings, we'll keep on executing, buying Centene shares, and building up our M&A pipeline to acquire as we create operational capacity. Thank you for your interest in Centene. Operator, Rocco, you can open the lineup for questions. Thank you. If you would like to ask a question, please press star than one on your telephone keypad. If you're using a speakerphone, we ask that you please pick up your handset before pressing the keys. If at any time your question has been addressed and you would like to withdraw your question, please press star than two. We do ask that you please limit yourself to one question. Today's first question comes from Stephen Baxter at Wells Fargo. Please go ahead. Hey, good morning, and thanks for all the details. Um, I still think there's maybe a little bit of confusion out there about the adjustments you're talking about on the exchanges in the quarter. Um, maybe you could break down those adjustments a little bit further just so we can really assess core performance. I guess, you know, potentially what was the benefit related to the 2022 plan year that you saw in the quarter? And then you're also talking about lowering booked revenue, I think, related to the financial conditions of some of the potential payers in the market. Is that related to 2022 or 2023 or some combination of both? I guess just trying to understand the underlying components of that $315 million figure you cited a little bit better. Thank you. Good morning, Stephen. Thanks for the question. Uh, appreciate it. This is obviously an important dynamic to understand. I, I'll let Drew walk through the mechanics and address your question, but there's one important point uh, and takeaway that I do want to make sure we don't lose, which is that it is a testament to the strength and experience of our Ambetter team that we're not only demonstrating tremendous growth, but ensuring that growth is profitable through risk prudent risk adjustment planning. And I think that's sort of the overlay to all of this, but let me make sure that um, Drew walks through all of the mechanics. Yeah, Stephen, and understandably, it's a little complicated and um, it's difficult to divine uh, some of these numbers with public information heretofore. So let me try to make it clearer. So let's start with 2022 risk adjustment. Um, the CMS final announcement was that we were owed $648 million and as you did and, and others, you could look back at our 10K and see that we had $58 million on our books at year end. So it's a $590 million difference. You heard the $300 million plus uh, item. That's, that's almost completely related to the 2022 year. We have a little bit of that uh, for 23 as one of those competitors um, was in the exchanges in certain markets for about a half a year this year and uh, appear to be out now. So so 300, over 300 is the largest reconciling item. And then similar to what you heard yesterday from, from one of my peers, uh, there is margin on estimates. Just like in IBNR, you put margin on estimates because you never want to book to an exact 50-50 outcome. Um, and so that margin rolls every year. That's about $100 million. Um, so that doesn't drop to the bottom line. It gets reestablished. And then breakage for minimum MLRs, where we're really performing well in some of our contracts. We have RAD vehicles. And so you get through all of that, you get down to $39 million would have been the P&L benefit uh, for, uh, recognized in 23 for the uh, final issuance of what we were owed by CMS. And that was recognized over uh, first and second quarter. Now let me jump to 2023. Uh, 2023, you can see we've shifted. We've we've got about 300 million on our books for 2022 receivable. We've shifted to about a billion and a half net payable for 2023, which demonstrates 
the strength of the acuity of the population and our estimates, partially informed by the Wakeley data we got in June and July, of where we expect to be relative to our peers. And we, we also booked that with some margin um, consistently year to year. And uh, uh, we'll see how that shakes out. But uh, we see that as a good sign. And you always have to look at that in tandem with uh, the acuity of the population, in, including our excellent growth this year. Thank you. And our next question today comes from Josh Raskin at Nephron Research. Please go ahead. Hi, thanks. Good morning. Um, just looking at 2024 and adjusting for the PDR, you know, EPS next year would be, if you sort of moved it, you know, from this year to next year, you know, EPS would be down, call it mid-single digits. Can you just help us bucket broad strokes? How much is, you know, Medicaid headwind from redeterminations? How much is MA? I think you sized the loss there. How much is earnings from ex exchanges? You know, how, is that going to rise? I'm sure there's a benefit from, you know, lower G&A dollars. There's the share buyback. Just any directional commentary to help us understand sort of the, the puts and takes. And then just lastly, help us understand the PDR and why that doesn't cover the entirety of the loss for Medicare Advantage next year. Yeah, let me start. Thanks, Josh. Let me start with uh, your, your last question. Yeah, it's the accounting rules around PDRs. You really only pick up, think of it as like the marginal loss and you know, direct costs necessary to administer the contract, um, including uh, distribution costs. But there's a lot you can't pull into a PDR um, in that SG&A. So that's why we still have an 80 cent loss, um, in the ballpark of 80 cent loss embedded in that 660 in 2024, despite the fact we're rolling uh, a projected $200 million, or call it 27 cents or so, PDR into 24. Um, if you step back and think about, and we've given a number of these um, elements of 24, even though you know typically we give 24 guidance at Investor Day in December of 23, but we've given a lot of information, so let me try to summarize some of that. Um, Medicaid, uh, about a $7 billion incremental revenue headwind. We've all known that for a while, and that's built into um, the figures we gave out in Q1, about a $77 billion Medicare revenue premium stream uh, in 2024. So a little bit of a headwind there in terms of volume. And then if you'll recall the bridge that we walked through in Q1 of HBR going from a projected 89.8 in 23 to a 90.1, inclusive of an allowance for some potential pressure and a mismatch between acuity and rates, um, as well as some benefit from uh, our PBM arrangement. So there's a couple of, you know, headwinds in Medicaid. Um, obviously, we talked about the, the 80 cent headwind, uh, which is not just the 80 cents, but it's, you know, we're making a little bit in Medicare this year, we expect to. So it's that swing. Marketplace, you're absolutely right. Not just um, you know, not just the uh, continued push on margin uh, in marketplace, but the growth this year and how that matures into next year, the sophomore year of special enrollment period members, uh, is attractive as I mentioned in the script. Uh, and then you're right, we've got other elements like the annualization of this year's share buybacks. Um, so those are the pieces that get you to the, the, the 660, uh, inclusive of the 80 cent headwind that's embedded in that, uh, which we expect to recover over the next, uh, you know, couple few years. 
Thank you. And our next question today comes from Justin Lake at Wolf Research. Please go ahead. Thanks. Good morning. Uh, I really appreciate all the color as well. Uh, I've got a few hopefully simple number of questions I'll rattle off to you here, and we'll see if, uh, what you uh, can answer. The the first one is I've got you at about three and uh, or I should say twenty percent of your uh, Medicare Advantage members right now in three and a half star plans. Uh, Sarah, I appreciate you giving the eighty five percent for twenty six. I was hoping you might be able to give us a twenty five ballpark there, uh, where you expect to be in October for three and a half star plans. Then Drew, you said fourteen percent of Medicare revenue, fourteen uh, percent of revenue in Medicare. Uh, what does that imply for MA membership? next year and then just lastly on the rate increases you're getting in the third quarter um how are the overall rates coming in versus typical one to two percent that i think you guys talk about thanks thanks for the questions justin i'll take the first one and then turn it over to drew um we're still a little bit early relative to cut points um so again that 85 percent target for october of 25 then to your point revenue year 26 we're seeing really solid improvement, as I pointed to, in terms of uh, two-thirds of our membership moving um, in contract improvement year over year. Directionally, and again, it's still the numbers are not final, but just to give you a sense, um, if we this year are sitting in about 50% of plans that are in three-star or above, we expect that to be around 90% of members in three-star or better um, come October. And so the exact numbers that fall in three or three and a half um, really depends on those cut points that we don't have yet, but just so you understand sort of the magnitude of directional improvement that we're tracking. Justin, I tried to give you all the inputs, but let me do some math to you for you. Um, so last quarter we said $128 billion for next year's revenue. Obviously, we'll refine that as we get through the year. So if you multiply that by 14%, that's $18 billion. Our Medicare segment includes MA and PDP. PDP is in the zone of a couple of billion. Um, so you can get down to about $16 billion of MA revenue. And if you did the same exercise for this year, we'd be in the zone of $20 billion in MA revenue. And then part three was the third quarter rates. Yeah, they're sort of, um, they're consistent with our expectation. They're all over the board because, you know, when we're, if you're deep into a payable um, risk corridor in a state, then ultimately they're going to recalibrate the rates to that, although there's no net impact to the company um, if we're, if we're in, the, in the corridor. So, it's not that instructive to go through, and we never go state by state, but uh, let me just step up to a higher level and say uh, we've been working well with our states, and, and you know, the, the typical back and forth with states on the non-acuity parts of rates and uh, call that normal course. Thank you. And our next question today comes from Lance Wilkes with Bernstein. Please go ahead. Great. Um, just a, a couple questions on um, kind of capital deployment and, and, and raising capital. Um, as far as the MA business, could you talk a little bit about variability of profitability by geography? And, and obviously part of that would be um, are there opportunities to maybe sell off portions of that business, uh, lower performing portions or, or whatnot? And I guess related in the other direction is, you mentioned MA pipeline. We're just interested in what the priorities are as you're looking at deploying capital. Yeah, thanks, Lance, for the question. Um, so, relative to 
Medicare Advantage, I think our view is, um, to your point, we take a, a geography by geography approach to looking at that portfolio. Our lens is through um, bid construction as we look at 24 and 25 and where there are less profitable products that we've put out there. And we talked about this on the Q1 call, but we've been very focused as we constructed 24 bids on this idea that there are less profitable or less aligned products, and that's where we are um, sort of aggressively pruning. So uh, directionally aligned, but not through the lens of divestiture, more through the lens of right-sizing and realigning um, the MA book overall to create that solid platform for growth and the synergy that it provides with the focus on lower income and complex members to our Medicaid footprint. Um, and then for the M&A pipeline, um, again, we continue to be focused on opportunities that are we consider sort of right down the fairway relative to um, our three core business lines, that being our primary focus, um, but also acknowledging that we t have two strong and important retail businesses, um, which is how we think about Marketplace and Medicare, and the platform that we think Marketplace um, provides in terms of long-term growth relative to what we're seeing from gig workers, contract workers, ICRA, and sort of this um, burgeoning individual marketplace. What are some of the capabilities that we think are going to be important uh, to own, those distinctive competencies? Um, and so those are also part of the consideration in the overall M&A pipeline. Thank you. And our next question today comes from A.J. Rice at Credit Suisse. Please go ahead. Uh, hi, everybody. Just um, to circle back to um, a couple things on the Medicaid re-verifications. Uh, obviously, it's sort of a Herculean task for the states to go through this process, it seems like, and everyone involved. Is it having any impact? It doesn't seem like it, but I'll ask the question on either RFPs working through the system or RFPs that are being awarded, being stood up. Have you seen any uh, spillover impact on any of that? And then just to follow up on uh, Drew's comment on the acuity adjustments, um, just give us the latest thinking on <clears throat> how quickly those acuity adjustments may happen uh, as, as data rolls in. And are there any states that are saying, hey, we'll help you out prospectively uh, anticipating some change? Yeah, thanks, AJ. Um, I'll let Drew talk about the rates, but it's, it is important just to, as a reminder, that you know we saw um, we have a number of states that had a seven-one renewal um, and had very constructive conversations. All of those states have included acuity adjustments, um, and we're seeing that trend carry forward. But I'll let him get specific on that um, relative to the overall. Medicaid redeterminations landscape, you are right that this is sort of an unprecedented scale of effort. Um, and we've been really pleased with the level of partnership that we've seen from the states and, and in general a trend that states are um, leaning in to the value of the public-private partnership um, that we offer. But, you know, Ken's been out talking with uh, our Medicaid directors and our governors uh, very closely over the last uh, weeks and months, so I'll let him uh, provide a little bit more color on that and then kick it over to Drew to just talk a bit about the rate discussions. Yeah, thanks, AJ. In fact, um, we were with uh, geez, nearly 14 governors last week, had an opportunity to um, spin through the um, uh, Republican Governors Association, and in every conversation we had, um, redeterminations came up with an eye towards, you know, one, what are we seeing by virtue of the view we have across multiple markets, um, best methods, 
and a genuine appreciation for the opportunity that's available to uh, uh, provide more informed counsel to members um, uh, through outreach. Sarah mentioned the, the uh, millions of interactions that we've had, the, uh, the collaboration with the departments, uh, clearly an eye towards um, you know, doing the best to give uh, members a, a chance to make an informed uh, decision. And when there's procedural disenrollments to move quickly to uh, provide uh, the opportunity to get those folks either into the right spot, whether it's um, in Medicaid or uh, we're seeing uh, opportunities in the marketplace. Uh, finally, I, to your point about whether it's going to um, slow the pipeline, uh, there's no indication of that with respect to procurements and reprocurements. Drew? Yeah, AJ, on acuity, over the, really over the past year, we've been putting data uh, in front of our state partners and working collaboratively with them and their actuaries in anticipation of the commencement of redeterminations. Um, so often, really on behalf of all the payers in the marketplace in Medicaid, we're we're uh, working with the state and the associations to to influence for what we think is appropriate in terms of not just race but the acuity component within rates. Uh, and then by definition, the seven one rate increases, and we still have two outstanding between seven one and ten one, but the twelve that we've gotten so far, uh, all of which have had acuity adjustments um, with a focus on the redetermination impact. By definition, those are prospective, you know, except for maybe the couple of months that we have under our belt so far in redeterminations. So pretty pleased with the partnership with our, our state partners and, uh, you know, plenty of work to do, AJ, but uh, it's a good start. Thank you. And our next question today comes from Kevin Fishback, Bank of America. Please go ahead. Great, thanks. I want to follow up on the comment that uh, redeterminations is going as expected. It seems like when you read some of the, the news articles that, that things are going, still being kicked off faster. Obviously, the administration is stepping in, which implies that things are going maybe a little bit faster. We'd love just to kind of hear how you're thinking about it, um, what it exactly means to have this delay. Would you expect... Um, you know, the pace to, to change dramatically, or have you, have you changed your view about the pace of uh, enrollment losses through the years? And is this slowdown that the administration is pushing, is it is it more about the timing of how things go the rest of this year, or do you think that ultimately it will change the, the number of people who get uh, redetermined off of the uh, enrollment? Thanks. Thanks, Kevin. Yeah, we had always anticipated um, a, the a upfront bolus of uh, redeterminations just because of the fact that there were certain states that were moving faster than others um, and, and others, you know, that had taken a more um, radical approach. So I think the idea that there is um, a, a an ama a big amount of upfront data um, is helpful, but not unexpected. Um, and then I, that has also given us some visibility into where there may be data issues um, that are causing or sort of the, the procedural disenrollments are um, higher than the states might have originally been expecting. In aggregate, though, as we said, our membership is on track with our expectations, um, and we're, we are recapturing members who 
um, fell off but still have eligibility. And because of all of the outreach efforts we're making, we're able to bring those members back on and track the fact that we're able to successfully re-enroll them. Um, and, and again, we do expect that number to grow over the course of the program. Relative to uh, the CMS intervention, um, our view is that uh, CMS has provided great flexibility for the states to go a little bit slower. Obviously, in re recent weeks, they've taken a, a bit of a stronger stance relative to a certain cohort of states. Um, but it's still too early to see whether that will have a major impact on the slope. Obviously, they've asked certain states to pause for a month. In other states, they're looking to extend the grace period relative to members replying to um, enrollment requests. And so, again, hard to say whether that's a slowdown to make sure that states are getting the process right so that they can continue at pace, or whether for those states that were quick out of the gate, it slows them down overall and what that does to the slope line. But that's something we're obviously going to be tracking very closely over the next couple of months. Yeah, and then just one last data point. Uh, we, uh, the ultimate um, sort of roll-off of redeterminations, our view hasn't changed. Still about 65% of what we grew since the onset of the pandemic. Uh, 3.6 million members uh, would, be, would have been the growth. So 65% of that rolling off would be 2.3 to 2.4 million members, about 9.5 to 10 billion of cumulative revenue. Um, so that's already factored into the numbers we gave in Q1, the, the $77 billion, for instance, of uh, forecasted Medicaid premium. Thank you. And our next question today comes from Scott Fidel with Stevens. Please go ahead. Uh, hi, thanks. Um, appreciate all the, the details that you gave us on, on some of the dynamics in the marketplace. Um, maybe helpful, too, just to bring it up to uh, sort of the high level if, if you wanted to share um, you know, what type of commercial MLR uh, you're now sort of embedding in, in the 2023 uh, guide and then in the 2024 uh, floor of at least 660. Um, and then inside of that, um, definitely appreciate the uh, conservatism around some of these receivables from uh, some of these, uh, these plans out there that are in a tough condition. Um, it, it, would you be willing to maybe just give us a little insight into how you sort of develop that $315 million reduction in terms of, you know, sort of, I guess, how that breaks down between Friday and Bright or, or just how your methodology works? Is it just sort of a general level of conservatism that, that you're building in there? Thanks a lot. Yeah, the team, uh, thanks, Scott. The team does a lot of work to mine out balance sheet positioning and statutory capital of our peers, uh, you know, that are uh, in potential financial difficulty, looking at what assets are backing reserves on their balance sheets. And then uh, you're right, hopefully taking a conservative approach on that and, and doing that different depending on the carrier situation. So um, we'll see how that plays out. You know, I hope to get every nickel of that $314 million, but uh, trying to be realistic and prudent, um, but we will fight for it because uh, that's shareholder money. Um, on the the HBR for commercial, um, commercial includes both marketplace, and we've got about $3 billion of commercial group business, which runs sort of meaningfully higher structurally than our marketplace business. And uh, we still expect to do a little bit better than last year. Uh, last year, commercial, we posted an 81-1, one, 
but thinking about the SCP membership rolling in uh, with a little bit higher HBR, now that's not for a full year, so you have to sort of slope that through. But uh, from a progression standpoint, uh, because the deductible natures of the commercial business, you should expect like an ongoing tick up of that total commercial HBR, uh, but it's sort of on track to, to what we expect. And again, just important to remember that the, you know, the performance of the core business and marketplace is allowing us to absorb that SEP growth, and those members tend to become more profitable in their sophomore year. So assuming good retention, the, the book that we're building this year will have incremental contribution next year. Thank you. And our next question today comes from Michael Ha with Morgan Stanley. Please go ahead. Thank you. Maybe just quickly first on Medicaid acuity adjustments. Uh, wondering, were these adjustments assumed or embedded in your 1.4% composite rate increase guide for 23, or are you now tracking better than that for 23? Trying to understand if uh, these major renewals actually represent upside to your guide. And then on STARS, I believe you're originally targeting 20% of members in four-star plus plans that you're invested in. Now that came down to about 14 to 18% last quarter and now 0%. I'm trying to understand what exactly changed since last quarter. It sounds like you might not have received cut points yet, or maybe I'm, I'm wrong you did and they were far more difficult. Was it driven by the two key outlier deletions? And just trying to get some more insight on what changed from last quarter to now, and does that even influence your 24 uh, MA growth assumptions? Yeah, so let me hit uh, stars and sort of rebase. So we did, at Investor Day, we were looking at 20% in four stars. On the Q1 call, because of what we saw in terms of the overall Medicare rate environment, some of the changes that we had made coming into the year relative to a focus on duals and what we were planning to do for 2024 bid construction and going forward, we walked through the fact that for our target population, right, which is increasingly going to be low-income, complex, and duals members, that three and a half stars is the more appropriate focal point for our star strategy. And so that is really how, over the next three to four cycles, we're looking at success in stars. Um, and so... I also on that call pointed out that we were seeing uh, four-star progress in the measures that we had visibility into at that point, which were those core admin and ops and pharmacy measures, which were our focus in this first cycle, um, but that we had a number of contracts that were on the bubble and that we were taking a conservative approach and actually assuming minimal progress. So the takeaway from the Q1 call was minimal progress in four-star off that 2.7% baseline. What we're saying today is with additional view of HEDIS and CAPS um, and some degree of sort of case mix, that there's a little bit more pressure in that four-star. Again, it's too early to say because we don't have cut points, but we want to be very transparent, and we used very conservative assumptions. Um, this does not impact 2024, right, because we already know the revenue for 2024, but it certainly was an input as we looked at 2024 bid construction relative to what we thought about in terms of 2025, 2026, and sort of the multi-year performance targets for the Medicare book. Um, and again, important to note that we are seeing really solid underlying improvement in, in the program and really taking a chapter-by-chapter -chapter approach to moving up all of our underperforming contracts into that three-and-a-half-star band, which is where we start to get important economics. Drew pointed this out on the Q1 call as well, that there's folks know the 
the economics associated with the four star, but there's a three to six percent economic lift that comes with moving into that three and a half star band. And when you combine that with the profile of a, a largely or heavily duals based population, those economics actually work very well relative to the performance we're looking for. And Michael, on the 1.4% uh, composite forecasted rate that we laid out in Investor Day in December of 22, that would have partially reflected our view at the time of what we thought might be necessary for acuity adjustments. But the reason I say partially is because you'll remember we basically pulled forward um, you know, sort of a lot of the forecasting for the next couple of years of acuity uh, as we got into the first quarter of 2023. So um, what we know now would push that number up, but there's also a counterbalance to that as we continue to perform well, especially in states with paybacks, where we're forecasting for 2023, sort of the uh, calendar year of 2023 to be in paybacks to the tune of about a billion three in Medicaid. Um, that would be a counterbalance to that because states ultimately adjust the rates uh, by looking at the pool of participants in Medicaid and their positioning in risk corridor payback. So it's sort of a stale number at this point, but those are two factors that would push and pull at that number. Thank you. And our next question today comes from Sarah James at Cantor Fitzgerald. Please go ahead. Thank you. Um, I was wondering if you could quantify what the redetermination impact was in the quarter, and then if we're thinking about the uh, sort of April and May cohort, especially April's coming up towards the end of their 90 to 120 day response period, and I know you guys only have a couple of states in that, that cohort, but um, could you talk a little bit about what sort of information you get? Do you know who is responding of your members, and um, have you gotten any information on what a success rate looks like for that April cohort? Yeah, Sarah, on, on, the, uh, on the question about the impact, you can look at the sort of the membership progression, and we're down 263,000 members from 331.23 in Medicaid, and that's sort of right on track with what we expected in terms of the impact. Um, and then on we can look at, so it's a good question on looking at each of those monthly cohorts independently, but we can actually see sort of the mem you know, members boomeranging back at a much higher rate with April because, to your point, you know, we're, we're a few months out from that incurred month as opposed to July, which would be a lower number because there's still some runway there for members to boomerang back. But um, so far, you know, that month is in the 20s in terms of percentage of members who lost eligibility that um, that have now regained it without, importantly, 85% of which without any break in uh, coverage period. There are some members, the other 15% of what we're seeing um, are being reinstated back to, you know, maybe a month or two after they lost eligibility, but it's very early. Uh, there was not a lot of redetermination activity in April, um, so it'll be interesting over the next few months to see that uh, that dynamic of members um, getting reinstated. Thank you. And our next question today comes from Gary Taylor with Cowan. Please go ahead. Hey, good morning. Had two questions for you. One, a couple of your competitors mentioned that the second quarter results bore 
a not immaterial uh, MLR headwind from the uh, California court settlement uh, related to COVID costs out of period. So just wondering if your quarter did, uh, this quarter did reflect that or if you had already booked that. And then secondly, just sort of coming back to Scott's question, I just, I just want to ask about commercial MLR again. And looking at this year over year, just to exclude sort of the deductibility seasonality, but in the first quarter, your commercial MLR was down 290. This quarter, it's up 350. A small portion of that is SEP. A small portion of that, I think, is the smaller, you know, year-to-year RAF accrual true up. So it, it really did seem to deteriorate. And But I know you're saying, I think you felt it was in line and you think the year's still going to come where you expect to land on commercial MLR. So I just wanted to understand uh, that that movement between 1Q and 2Q a little better from your view. Yeah, on the Medi- on SB 510 in California, we booked that in Q1 when we got that information, um, which is, I think we explained this on the Q1 call also. That's why we were a little bit high at 90.0, um, and then we had a really good quarter in Q2. So year-to-date, we're looking good uh, in Medicaid. And then you're right on commercial. You've got the dynamic of Q222 having a really, you know, sort of a good guy. You know, we didn't have any insolvency issues um, from the 21 calendar year. And so that wasn't chipping away at the uh, final settlement from CMS like it is over the last five quarters, uh, you know, including, you know, this quarter as well. So that's sort of the swing item. And our growth, our growth was excellent last year. It is tremendous this year. And while that puts a little bit of pressure on the near term, um, we're thrilled that, um, you know, with our number one market position, leveraging the Ambetter brand, we're able to grow a lot this year, which will give us earnings power for 2024 and beyond. But that does show up in the current period HBR a little bit. Thank you. And our next question today comes from Calvin Stemmick with J.P. Morgan. Please go ahead. Yeah, thanks for the question. Um, just a clarification in terms of the Medicaid retention rate. I know about a third you expect to end up with, but in terms of timing, just given that we have these, you know, 90, 120-day sort of re-enrollment windows, do you expect to land at that one-third number? I guess you know, second quarter of 24, or is there going to be sort of a couple of month lag where maybe it'll take another quarter before you, you know, end up landing at that one-third? Well, part of that depends on whether or not um, people finish in that 14-month time period. And, you know, who knows what might be going on by the time we get to Q1 or Q2 of 2024. Um, So tough to predict exactly when each state will end. Um, But we think that's, you know, the, the numbers we gave without trying to predict exactly the month we hit that, we think that's the ultimate outcome. Uh, and that hasn't changed. And again, all those outreach efforts that I mentioned are designed to try to minimize the the span between someone who's dropped eligibility but is still eligible and the recapture. Um, and that includes obviously the direct outreach, but also relying on um, primary care physicians and providers in general so that we're not recapturing folks when they're showing up at an emergency department. Um, and so I think that outreach has also proven to be successful, at least in these early months. Thank you. And our next question today comes from Stephen Valcat with Barclays. Please go ahead. Uh, great, thanks. Uh, good morning. Um, 
Maybe just to shift gears on the uh, the Medicare side for a moment, and your uh, your comments around the cost trends were, uh, were definitely helpful. You know, there's still a lot of different theories out there as to why Medicare is seeing an elevated cost trend in 23 specifically, you know, particularly in outpatient, while Medicaid and commercial are not really seeing the same elevated trends. So I was just curious to get your thoughts and any additional color on why you think this is happening in Medicare uh, specifically this year. Thanks. Yeah, I mean, it's... Um tough to speculate here and don't plan on it, but you could probably think about our, the composition of our members. You know, 49% of our members in Medicaid are under 19 years old, so there's probably not a lot of cardiac or ortho or cataract, uh, which is what we're seeing on the Medicare side. Um, other than that, you know, can't really explain other than saying what we're seeing in, in Medicaid and marketplace uh, is pretty stable relative to the pop we saw in May, which it's not alarming, um, but figured it would be helpful commentary for you guys, um, you know, given some of the uh, you know, noise around the industry and the fact that our Medicare HBR was a little bit higher than we expected in the second quarter. Thank you. And our next question today comes from Nathan Rich at Goldman Sachs. Please go ahead. Hey, uh, thank, good morning. Thanks for the, the questions. Just a couple clarifications. Um, maybe just sticking on that last question, um, Drew, I'd be curious, you know, if you could maybe frame um, the magnitude of the this kind of step down that you saw in June when you're thinking about kind of monthly cadence and, and how you're expecting that to play out over the back half of the year. And then um, a quick question. Uh, follow up on the marketplace margins and expectations for next year, you know, given um, both the growth you're seeing, this, the SEP enrollment, you know, as well as kind of pricing plans for 24, what type of margin improvement you'd expect to see um, in the commercial business uh, next year, just as we think about progression into 24? Thank you. Well, we definitely uh, have price for and, and uh, expect margin progression as as we get into 2024. We'll have to give you more of an update as we get towards the end of the year uh, at Investor Day for more specific 24 guidance elements that detailed. And then on your 23 question uh, related to trend, as Sarah said in her script, you know we've got we've got accommodation in our. Uh, at least 645 uh, adjusted EPS guidance for some continuation uh, of this, although to your point, we did see a step down, not all the way back to April, but a step down in June and sort of that holding in July uh, with respect to you know, the relativity from what we saw with May and Kurds through their second month of development. Thank you. And ladies and gentlemen, this concludes our question and answer session. I'd like to turn the conference back over to Sarah London for any closing remarks. Thanks, Racco, and thanks, everyone. We appreciate the interest and all the great questions. We look forward to providing additional updates on our progress as we move through the back half of 23. I hope you all have a great day. Thank you. This concludes today's conference call. We thank you all for attending today's presentation. You may now disconnect your lines and have a wonderful day.